everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Priyanka, and this is the Supply Chain Scoop, your midweek source of refreshing supply chain content and stories straight from titans in the industry. I'm in conversation with Doug Stevens, founder and CEO of Retail Profit. But I just call Doug the Retail Profit because he has such a strong pulse of the industry. Doug has spent over 25 years in retail and is one of the world's foremost retail industry futurists. He's also written a couple of bestsellers on reimagining retail and his unique perspective in business and consumer behavior has been featured in many of the world's leading publications like the New York Times, BBC, TechCrunch, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, amongst many others. I'm going to be chatting to Doug about surprising developments in retail over the years, how the role of the stores is changing, which technologies are having a transformative effect on supply chain, how a retailer can keep up with consumer behavior, and just how the retail organizational setup has changed over the years. I'm also going to ask him for his prophecy at the very end of our session to make sure that you listen right through. Lots to talk about, so I'm just going to dive straight in. Hi there, Doug. I'd love a little bit of an introduction to yourself. Of course. My name is Doug Stevens. I'm the founder and CEO of Retail Profit. We're a futures-based consultancy based in Canada, but we work globally. I've spent about 20 years in retail prior to founding Retail Profit in 2009, and our our clients include companies like Walmart, L'Oreal, Google, uh, LVMH, but we also do work with government organizations as well as out-of-category businesses like hospitality and food and beverage. I've written two books. One is The Retail Revival, which came out in 2013, and my most recent book, Reengineering Retail, The Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World, which was uh, published in 2017. I'm a syndicated radio columnist for CBC Radio Canada, and I'm also a columnist for the UK-based business of fashion, and I sit on multiple corporate and academic advisory boards. That is so cool. It seems like there's nothing that you don't do, hey? (laughs) Well, uh, I try. I try to keep myself busy, that's for sure. Good stuff. So you've obviously been in the industry a long time, Doug. The question that I have is, what is perhaps the most surprising thing about the retail industry today, which you absolutely could not have predicted three years ago? Well, I mean, three years is uh, is actually not that long a period of time, surprisingly. I know a lot can happen in three years, but it's not really that long a horizon. But I would say that the one thing that I, I might have expected three years ago, I, I can say I'm somewhat surprised by today, is I expected Facebook actually to have a much longer runway when it came to retail. I I felt that Facebook would be playing a greater role for retailers and perhaps even as a retailer on its own than it is today. And part of that is I don't think I anticipated the degree to which Facebook would become culpable in terms of a misuse or a lack of security around personal information. And obviously it you know, with the um, news around the 2016 U.S. election and uh, Mm -hmm. some of the, you know, the malfeasance around uh, how consumer data was handled during that time, consumers have really, I think, lost a tremendous amount of confidence in Facebook. Well, I didn't expect that to happen as quickly as it did. And as I said, 
three, three to five years ago, I might have been saying, you know, Facebook is going to become a very central uh, aspect of consumer behavior. I felt that they would play a huge role in our shopping behavior, but I, I don't see that as being the case now. And in fact, I, I think Facebook uh, is, you know, could could be facing some pretty dire consequences in the years ahead. Oh wow, yeah, that's interesting. I guess to flip the question, what is perhaps something that you did predict quite a few years ago that's becoming a reality today? In 2013, I started writing about the premise that retail as as we know it would go from being, and in particular physical stores, would go from being a distribution vehicle for products to becoming more of a media channel uh, for brands and for brands to communicate branded experiences and stories to consumers and treat the physical space much more like a media channel than a distribution channel. And I think we're clearly beginning to see that now. There are there are concepts that are emerging. There are experiments that, that various retailers are now instigating that are directionally anyway clearly moving in the direction of making the physical space media channel. Uh, I think the next shoe to drop in that respect is that we're going to start to see the economic model for retail changing entirely. I think that the idea that, that, that retailers are fundamentally looking at physical stores as a means of, of generating dollars per square foot or comp store sales I think those those sort of industrial metrics are going to start to slide away and they're going to start to value those physical spaces more by the value of the media impressions that they're generating for consumers. The, the buying behavior is now being distributed across any number of different channels, you know, in sort of this omni-channel world that we live in. But um, But clearly stores are becoming appreciated now as a valuable and important uh, media channel for brands. Very cool. I guess aside from the Amazons, Alibabas, and Walmarts of the world, which are the top three retailers, according to you, that are most agile and adaptable to, like you said, the omni-channel reality uh, of today, and why? You know, it's interesting because when I wrote the last book, Reengineering Retail, I was setting out really to try and find brands that I felt had sort of really nailed it. You know, uh, brands that that kind of had the whole uh, the whole solution at hand in terms of moving in a very future forward looking way. And uh, what I found is that, and and I actually call this out in the book, is that the future is basically already here. It's just it, it's distributed very widely across the market. There is no one retail really that I feel is is doing everything right, you know, and, and completely reinventing what they do. However, there are bright spots. I mean, um, I think Nike is doing some really, really interesting work. In, in 2017, uh, Mark Parker eventually announced that, you know, out of their network of 30,000 retail partners worldwide, Nike was now going to partner closely with 40 of those retailers that it felt could put together the kind of experience, the unfiltered Nike experience that the brand expected. But the rest of its capital and resources and, and effort were going to go into its owned stores and its owned online channels. Since that time, they've opened um, stores like the Nike Melrose store in LA, which is a really, really interesting, very, very digitally connected store. Uh, its inventory is established by uh, monitoring and, and analyzing online sales from within that local market. So they're oh, actually wow. populating. Yeah, they're, they're, they're using online data to populate the inventory of the store. The store is essentially activated by the Nike app. So if you become a member of the Nike Running Club, you can go into the store and you can very much personalize the experience in store by virtue of 
your use of the app. So so that that's a really cool thing. Sephora is also a brand that, that continues to kind of push the envelope of innovation. Uh, their tip stores or their teach inspire play stores, I think, were, were a tremendous move in the right direction. And, and they're also a brand that, that has a really clear sense of celebrating the attributes of each channel. So they use mobile in a very skillful way to solve customer problems that are kind of native to the attributes of mobile, mm-hmm. uh, but they still celebrate the physical experience of a store. You know, they, they're very much about the theatrics and the animation of the store experience. So I think they're doing some great things. Nordstrom, you know, very, very traditional department store brand with a still a very active family leadership of that brand. And yet they're doing some really interesting things like their Nordstrom local store in Los Angeles, where there is no stock in the store, there's no inventory, everything is ordered online. But when you pick your order up, uh, you're treated to a really delightful experience where you can have your garments tailored, you can work with a stylist, you can have a glass of wine, mm-hmm. uh, get a manicure. You know, So again, they're sort of decoupling the, the purchase from the ultimate experience that you can have. So suffice to say, there's there's a tremendous amount going on. I think we're very much in an exploratory phase in retail right now where um, retailers are, are out there and they're experimenting and they're iterating and they're innovating. And there's some really interesting things going on, but we, we've got a long, long way to go before we get to, to utopia, so to speak. <laughs> and what what does utopia look like? Well, I mean, if I look at how I think the you know the store, if we look at how the store is going to change over the next say five years, I, I truly believe that this this evolution of the store becoming a, a media channel will ultimately play out, and um, I think that uh, you know Rachel Schechtman who's a, uh, not only a friend of mine but she's also the founder of uh, a business called Story in New York City. Uh, Story is essentially a 2,000-square-foot store that kind of acts like a magazine. So every four to six weeks, they roll out a new edition of the store, completely oh, revamped, wow. new merchandise. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, and they create themed events, and they work with brands, big brands, on creating these really, really well-curated themed events in store. And the whole look and feel of the store changes, as do the you know the events and, and activities that take place in the store during that period of time. Just recently, uh, Macy's actually purchased Story and made Rachel oh. Schechtman their chief experience officer. But this is a long-winded way of me telling you that her take on this whole store as as media evolution is that essentially media is effective wherever people gather. And her view is that that used to be either around the radio or around the television, uh, or people would would gather around editions of magazines when they came out. And, And now that is less the case. But certainly, retail is a gathering point for people. I, I can't remember the number, but each week, Apple stores get something like 80 million visitors uh, visiting their stores. So that's an appreciable audience. You know, that, that's a, a massive audience for media messages. And I, I truly believe that we're going to start to monetize those audiences in retail. And so I would expect that, the, you know, that, that evolution is, is going to play out over the next 
I'd say two to five years, we're going to see that manifest itself. Well, there you are. You really must be a prophet because that was literally what was going to be my next question, is, uh, how the rule of stores is going to change in two to five years. So I'll just move on to the next one. As a result of Omnichannel, Doug, what have you seen are the most noticeable shifts in how functions and departments are set up within a retail company, say, compared to like 10 years ago? Well, I mean, 10 years ago, I think digital and online commerce was really nothing else. It was really just a distraction more than anything. I think that most organizations were deriving very little in the way of revenue from online. I think everybody recognized that the likelihood was that it was going to grow, and it was probably going to grow significantly. But I don't think most organizations really treated digital as an integral part of what they were doing. It was just kind of a, this, this thing that was off to the side while they ran their physical stores and their physical supply chains. Now I think we've come to the realization, not only that digital is integral, but it, but it is now kind of the starting place for all commerce. We we know that 80% of all retail now is in some way, shape, or form being influenced by digital, whether that's you know just using your smartphone to look up an address or store hours, or whether it's actually completing a significant purchase. I, always, I refer sometimes to the fact that just on Singles Day uh, in China, Alibaba.com sold 100,000 cars. You know, so so virtually anything now is uh is transactable via online wow and, and so, we're talking about real cars not hot wheels yeah yeah no this is this is a hundred thousand real vehicles traded hands wow. you know just on that one day so i think you know most organizations now are, are starting to recognize that digital is really central now to everything and now that that is not to suggest that we shouldn't still be celebrating the physical experience of a store i think there's tremendous value in that but uh, digital is now the connective tissue that runs through all of that. So I'm starting to see in terms of you know how organizations are structuring themselves, they're sort of putting digital at the center of everything. You know, at, whereas, as I said, 10 years ago, the digital guys within these companies were just sort of these, these weirdos that kind of hung out in one section of the office building and nobody really <laughs> knew what they did. Wow, lots of change, hey? What do you think a retailer can do then to keep up with evolving customer behavior and demands? Because it just seems that it changes very frequently, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it is. It's changing extremely fast now, and it, and it is difficult to keep up. I think, I, think the, I think one of the most important things is the leadership of the organization, and, and I, I can't tell you the number of times I'll go and do a, a, a talk or a presentation for an organization, and I'll often get people coming up to me afterwards, and I'll sort of say, most of us buy in completely to what you're saying. We get it. We understand where everything's going, and we we you know, understand the magnitude of the changes that are going on. Problem is our leadership doesn't get it mm. or our leadership just doesn't embrace this, you know. So I think the starting point is with leadership. And it's difficult because Western leadership culture is a culture that is based around the idea that leaders should be very certain about what they're doing. You know, we, we, sort, we sort of fundamentally build our whole ethos around leadership on the basis of certainty. We want leaders that are certain about what they're doing. 
um, and very confident about their strategy. Unfortunately, that doesn't really mesh very well with innovation mm. because innovation is inherently sort of about uncertainty and the willingness to em- embrace that uncertainty. Um, so we find ourselves at a, at a place now, I think, where just this notion of, you know, kind of continuous improvement and iteration and experimentation is no longer good enough. We really need leaders that are prepared to take bolder steps, and kind of, you know, as, as I say, to, to run briskly into the fog of the future and, and embrace the uncertainty that comes with that accept the fact that uh, if they are truly trying to innovate, that they are going to be encountering failures and they have to be okay with that. And we also need leaders that are prepared to defend that position to the market and really push back on investors, reiterate the, the essential need for innovation in these times. So without that, it, you know, you can't really change the organization. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to create a culture of innovation within the company. Assuming you have the right leadership, it's then up to the organization to really now define what innovation looks like, to incorporate those values into their hiring, into their testing of employees, to, to actually understand who their most creative and innovative employees are, to build it into the work culture, to give people opportunities that set them up for success as innovators, and then ultimately to build that into their reward systems as well so that people are being remunerated for the right behaviors internally. But ultimately, the whole organization has to understand, I think, Priyanka, that consumers are no longer benchmarking vertically. Consumers are no longer walking away from a bad shoe-buying experience and saying, well, that was horrible, but at least it was better than the last horrible shoe-buying experience mm-hmm. I had. We're now walking away from experience and and saying, why couldn't that have been as easy as my last Uber ride? Or Mm. uh, why couldn't that have been as seamless as my last Airbnb experience? So consumers are now starting to measure, not in category, but really more broadly across the spectrum. And I think that really sets a lot of categories up for disruption. It leaves the door open for disruption. So I think it's really important that executives within these organizations be looking really more broadly at what's happening, not just in their category, but what's what's happening in music, what's happening in entertainment, what's happening in technology. They have to start looking more deeply for those answers, not just going to their industry trade association conferences right. once a year. Right, that makes a lot of sense. thinking that all the answers are there, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess it's true, right? Because at the end of the day, what is it that we want as consumers? Uh, convenience and a range of options. And I think you're right that that's true for whether you want to get a cab or whether you want to buy a shoe. And that's just people, right? That's just psychology. Absolutely. I I think that, you know, ultimately what we want as consumers is we want great experiences. Now, the the definition of of an experience can change depending on what we're buying and even depending on sort of the, the situation. You know, I'm doing some work right now with a company that is working on reinventing the airport experience. And so we've been, you know, really delving into, well, you know, what does that experience look like? Well, it really depends, right? If you're if you're a business traveler or if you happen to be traveling for business on a particular day, your expectations of the experience may be very, very different than if you're going on holiday with your family. You know, your expectations of what the experience at the airport should be will be very different depending on which hat you're wearing on, on any given day. The same applies to retail. You know, we can talk about these deep 
you know, kind of emotionally connected, very immersive experiences. But question is, does that account for the consumer who just wants to get in and out quickly? You know, are we yeah. are we also building in sort of a fast lane uh, for for that kind of experience? But I think in the end, what we walk away with as a consumer, uh, despite you know, all the work and effort that goes into constructing the experience itself, we just walk away saying that was either awesome or it was horrible, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, that, and that's what I think we have to appreciate as retail practitioners. Absolutely. Well said. You alluded a little bit to technology earlier as well. What do you think is the top technology or top few technologies that are having a transformative effect on specifically the supply chain function in the retail industry? It's a good question. The things that I can say are are being um, leveraged right now. I, I think that uh, organizations are beginning to get their arms around the the promise of big data. I think that um, big data is now uh, allowing for uh, a volume of analysis that was never even conceivable before. So organizations now are beginning to find uh, trends and sort of hidden correlations inside these masses of data that they've been collecting for years and years. Certainly it's allowing them to to cleanse a lot of the data that they that they do have on hand. Um, so certainly, big data is you know allowing for some insights within within supply chain operations. AI and machine learning also really um, lending now a new level of analysis of that data and really allowing brands to sort of get better at optimizing things like their their inventory levels. So that's coming into play. And then blockchain as well. Um, I was recently at a um, cybersecurity conference. Uh, where I was speaking, and, and a lot of the discussion at that conference was around the use of, or the potential use anyway, of blockchain to sort of decentralize consumer data. A lot of the vulnerability around consumer data is is the fact that in many cases it's being held by one party, uh, and one party that can be vulnerable to attack. But mm. this notion of using a blockchain to distribute that data, perhaps even in different pieces, you know, in a decentralized way. Yep. Uh, now makes it uh, exponentially more difficult for someone to try and hack that data. There's a number of technologies, and I think right now organizations are are very much still kind of, I think we're on the backside of the hype curve, really, Mm -hmm. where we've heard about, you know, the capabilities of of these technologies, but I think now we're on the backside of that curve and organizations are really trying to find out what is the true value, where, where can we find true value with these these technologies. Lots of interesting stuff happening. Final question for the retail profit is, what's your prophecy for the next decade of retail, Doug? Um, and it's a huge question, but I'll, I'll take some shots here. I think that we're going to see over the next six to 10 years, online retail is going to balloon to be 25 to 30% of all retail. I think that we are going to see an acceleration in online shopping, that like the likes of which we've never seen before. Uh, we're moving into what I call the replenishment economy, where more and more of our routine, redundant purchasing behavior is going to become auto-replenishment. It'll be just sensor-driven, whether that's by virtue of connected appliances or even connected packaging now, uh, which is being developed that can monitor the contents of products in our homes and actually trigger reorders for those products. So, when when we kind of add all that up, I see this this massive uh, growth of of online, and I and I think within ten years, if we look, we're going to look back on 
the Amazon or, or Alibaba shopping experience, and those things are going to look essentially like JCPenney or Sears catalogs to us. <laughs> you know, it's it's going to appear so outdated compared to the way <laughs> we're going to be shopping online going forward. The uh, right now we're hearing a lot about cashierless stores like mm-hmm. the Amazon Go store or mm-hmm. Bingo Box in in the Chinese market. I believe that uh, within certainly within ten years, most convenience-based stores are going to be completely autonomous. And I think that's also going to have uh, a negative impact on employment. I think we're on the precipice right now of a retail refugee crisis where literally millions upon millions of frontline retail workers are in jeopardy of losing their jobs to technology. And I think that will play itself out over the next five to 10 years. I also believe that when we look at artificial intelligence and how that's going to play a role in our consumer lives, I believe that each of us is going to subscribe to an AI assistant. Um, I'm not sure who the providers will be, but I'm sure that you know, certainly Amazon and Apple and Google are all going to be players in that market. But we will subscribe to an AI assistant that essentially becomes our consumer Sherpa that becomes our guide for virtually every major consumer decision that we're making. We will consult with our AI assistant, whether it's booking a hotel or a restaurant Mm. or finding a flight. And we're going to become as reliant on these AI assistants as we are on Google Maps today to navigate our bodies from one point to another we'll look to our AI assistants to really navigate our consumer behavior. And then just a couple of other things I see on the horizon. I think, number one, within 10 years, Amazon will begin to falter. I wrote Mm. an article recently for Business of Fashion, which was entitled The End of Amazon. And a lot of people thought I was kind of crazy for taking this position, but I firmly believe that within 10 years, Amazon is going to start to kind of implode under its own weight. And I think that it may fall victim to the same sort of problems that many large organizations encounter, not the least of which was Walmart. And and so I I think that um, there are a number of reasons why we're going to start to see the wheels coming off Amazon within a 10-year time frame. And then lastly, I believe that shopping centers and retail center developers are going to develop a new economic model for how they treat tenancies within their centers. And I I don't believe that the concept of rent and percent of sales rent is going to uh, persist into the future. I think it's it's definitely going to be more of a, a media revenue model that they adopt wow. for, for shopping centers. So, um, yeah. Lots, that is really lots, interesting. Lots. A, a follow-up question. So, you know, the point about Amazon possibly faltering in 10 years, and you said that yeah. there are probably, you know, a few big reasons why. Would you mind mentioning what are some of the reasons that you think that could happen? And also, is there something that they can do that might mean that they don't actually falter? Yeah, I mean, it can be mitigated, that's for sure. I'll put it to you this way. If we look at Walmart, for example, I mean, if, if all the things that we're saying about Amazon today, you know, wildly innovative company, iconic founder, hugely innovative, and, and really just decimating the competition. Mm-hmm. Right? All, all of those things, if I take those and I, and I transport those back 30 years, those were exactly the same things that people were saying about Walmart. Now, I grant you they're very different companies, but it's also worth noting that Walmart was one of the companies that Jeff Bezos very clearly patterned much of Amazon on. 
he, hmm. he was a huge admirer of Walmart and of Costco, but uh, Walmart sort of became his muse in, in the creation of Amazon. Now, we also know that Walmart sort of fell prey to its own success. It was so hugely successful with its super centers and its, its large-scale physical retail operations that mm-hmm. it, it failed to make the necessary investments in online, and it is now paying the price for that. In 2015, Walmart posted its first-ever sales decline, okay. uh, which was a, a cataclysm for that organization. So in the article, I basically call out the fact that organizations develop blind spots, and, and success is sometimes their worst conspirator. Amazon has been su- hugely successful thus far with a model that is essentially predicated on two things, vast selection and convenience in shipping. Jeff Bezos believes, as he's articulated, that that's the strategy that's going to carry them through the next 10 years. But I think that's dangerous. I think assuming that what got you to where you are today is going mm. to get you through the next decade is a very, very dangerous blind spot. Right. And and there are already companies that are trailing Amazon in that blind spot with new technologies that promise a very, very different looking online shopping experience. So I would worry that Amazon would simply, you know, kind of continue to pursue the model that made it successful. And in the meantime, the world sort of changes around it and it wakes up one morning and finds itself in the same position Walmart found itself in uh, and and having to make up for lost time. The other thing that concerns me about Amazon is right now, Amazon is doing two things. It's inviting brands onto its platform to have a direct sales relationship with consumers. And Amazon is promoting itself as the best platform for brands to use to have that direct to consumer relationship. But at the same time in the background, Amazon is trademarking dozens and dozens of brand names within various categories across the spectrum. And one by one by one, they are launching products that are going head-to-head with the very brands that they're entreating to come on to Amazon. Uh, Mm -hmm. They just did this recently with uh, the whole bed-in-a-box concept. Amazon announced that it is going to now be in that market. Private label sales are going to make up $7.5 billion in sales for Amazon this year, and we expect by 2022 that number could be closer to $25 billion in private label sales. Those are sales it's essentially going to be undermining from its brand partners. So uh, my point in telling you this is that I believe that Amazon could also face a Brexit of sorts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can't have the cake and eat it too. (laughs) That's right. I think that brands may begin defecting from Amazon once they realize that this is a bait and switch, that, that their data, their sales data, is actually being used by Amazon to determine what Amazon should be manufacturing to essentially take that market away from the very brands that it's partnering with. So if that begins to happen, that that could could represent a very, very significant problem for Amazon because it depends on brands for traffic. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, I guess it just comes down to the customer experience as well. I mean, Amazon is, is a great tool, but it, it's, it's not fun, it's not social, it's not interactive, and it is certainly not a place that people are going to discover product. We know that the vast majority of searches that take place on Amazon for product are cases where the consumer already knows what they want. They're just this going to the digital catalog to find out if they have it. But 
Uh, we also know that they're not going to Amazon to discover what's new, what's exciting, what should they be interested in. They're, they're finding that information elsewhere. So that leaves, I think, Amazon also with a, a vulnerability to someone that comes along and says, look, we'll give you the, the vast selection that Amazon has. We'll give you the convenience of, of shipping, but we're also going to make this shopping experience really fun and social and, and immersive for you as well. And that could that could certainly turn the tide against Amazon. Now, I have to put all this against the backdrop that I understand that Amazon is not a retailer per se. They have an extremely complex business. I understand that they derive revenue from multiple uh, sources, but uh, we also have to appreciate that one of the greatest drivers of traffic to Amazon is indeed their retail business. And if they lose that business, I think Amazon ceases to be Amazon. Right. A lot of really cool and interesting things you've mentioned, Doug. I'd also love a link, by the way, to the article you're talking about. Sounds fantastic. I have had such a good time speaking with you. I feel like there should be another round once retail changes a little <laughs> bit more significantly as well. I'm going to keep following your work. Thank you so much for taking out the time to speak with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.